This evening I'd like to talk about the journey to a bow. Now you'll probably notice here, although it's quite a bit less and a number of other centers in different traditions, but still there's quite a bit of bowing that goes on here at Gaia House. And it often happens, you know, both people new to practice and often old students come and they ask really what it's all about. You know, why are people bowing? Some people assume it's a kind of, you know, initiation ritual reserved for advanced students. Some people think they must have missed some piece of instruction that everybody else got. Some people tell me they feel quite uncomfortable with it. They feel quite uncomfortable seeing it, that it looks like a kind of religiosity that, you know, they actually came to this kind of tradition in order to get away from. I think there are, of course, many reasons for bowing. You know, for some people, it's really a gesture of respect and appreciation. Um, For some people, it expresses a quality of gratitude the sort of long lineage of the teaching, the path. Some people bow as a way of taking refuge, as a way of also a a setting of a clear intention, sense of dedication in their sitting and walking. And there are no doubt a whole number of reasons for bowing that I have absolutely no idea what they are. But what I'd like to talk about this evening, or at least to begin the talk with, is about my own very long journey to a bow. I began my own practice in the Tibetan tradition and culture, which is like really a serious bowing tradition. And it's not just sort of little inclinations of the head, you know, or hands together. We are talking about full prostrations. It's a full prostration tradition. You know, and and if you've ever spent time in Tibetan communities or around Tibetan people, you know, you come across the reality that people go on pilgrimages for thousands of miles, prostrating the entire way. In fact, I was a little surprised, you know, a little curious when I first arrived in the community that I lived in for a number of years. I wondered what it was. What was it? All these people had calluses on their forehead. You know, I thought maybe it was a sort of Tibetan genetic DNA thing or something. And it was, it was bowing. It was all those prostrations as you built up these calluses on their foreheads. When I first began my own training, I went into this little mud hut that my teacher lived in on the mountainside. And I saw, the first thing I saw was a few, a couple of old students there prostrating at his feet. And my first response, actually it's truer to say my first reaction, was very very on a gut level, it was very visceral, before it even entered the level of conscious thought, what I was aware of was this major, no way am I doing that. 
you know, and, and what I really saw in the prostration was a kind of manifestation of a sort of a humiliation or a subjugation or a kind of self-effacement. And I certainly had plenty of pride when I began to practice. You know, and I used to rationalize this reaction, you know, and I'd think, well, you know, here's sitting this, you know, bald, plump, unsmiling old man, you know, swaddled in his red robes, and, you know, why would I lower myself before him? You know, or who is he to deserve or warrant this? And, of course, you know, in retrospect, <laughs> I'm very conscious of the fact that I didn't even have the awareness to to notice these kind of recurring words and emotions about I, me, you, him, high, low, better, worse, worthy, unworthy, the whole, whole thing. All I knew was that it really troubled me. And that over the years, you know, certainly spending several years uh, with this teacher, you know, a little awareness, I would say, a little, at least a little awareness grew in the light of the teaching. And I did feel a, a, somewhat of a growing, a growing respect, would be the right word, a growing respect and appreciation for the depth of his wisdom and commitment and patience and compassion, um, he really communicated, especially in the face of this group of unruly, unkempt hippies who I'm sure he had absolutely nothing in common with and never come across alike in his entire life. So in the light of this growing appreciation and gratitude, I, I did find myself kind of inching towards a bow. You know, I'd manage a little bob of the head. You know. It's kind of a token bow, you could say. You know, and at times it was much more a, a much more deep and a much more heartfelt bow. But still, for me, there was always some kind of tension um, within this. And over the years, I really did continue to practice. You know, in a number of other um, bowing cultures. You know, in Thailand and in Thai monasteries, I it was quite a bit of bowing went on there. But the, what I did see was I did see you know a lot of elderly and young elderly nuns with years of practice on their knees before young monks. You know, hadn't even learned to turn off their radios yet. And it was always one way. I saw the bow only ever went one way. And there, in that situation, because the bow only went one way, I'm a little ashamed to say that I spent a lot of time in the monasteries really figuring out, trying to figure out how to sabotage the whole scene. You know, and I was in this kind of state of this full-blown rebellion that, about the ritual of the bow, what felt to me like a ritual of this one-way bow. Then I went to Korea, you know, and I saw practice environments, quite frankly, where everyone bowed to everyone and everything, you know. <laughs> they bowed to the gateposts, you know, I couldn't believe it. Everybody was always bowing, but it was this real smile, this real sense of happiness in the bow, you know, and it, it was this tremendous kind of mutuality of acknowledgement and, and respect. 
And over the years, I, you know, for myself, I've come to see the bow not just as a physical gesture, but as an in- investigation, as an inquiry, as an invitation to wisdom. And the bow, when I look at it in my own practice, has been a, a metaphor for understanding many aspects of the Dharma. It's been a metaphor for understanding pride and selfing and discriminating wisdom and, and uh, the conceit of self and self-image. So, you know, for me, this bowing stuff is, is no small thing but a journey. By the way, I do want to mention very, very clearly and loudly that this talk is not an encouragement in any way or form for the non-bowers amongst you to suddenly take up bowing. Please feel happy not bowing. I just know I gave this talk in the States once, you know, and suddenly the next day the whole room was bowing. These other people never bowed before. And I thought, no. I think in the bow, perhaps the first issue or the first question to address is to acknowledge, as a friend of mine once wrote, that a bow is bowing is not the same as scraping. That often we think of bowing as kneeling or humbling ourselves before someone or something that is more worthy of respect than we ourselves are. And surely in some of my experiences, this was truly the home of my resistance. And in fact, I think it might well be a worthy resistance when that expectation is woven into the bow. As if bowing becomes a sort of statement of inferiority, of unworthiness. And I think it's clear over centuries and throughout our own lifetimes You know, for many of us, we will be able to relate to times in our life where there's just been too much scraping, too much of a, 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 too many gestures of unworthiness or inner demeaning. And I think for many people in practice, in fact, the journey of renouncing scraping is really a long and hard path. And it's part of the path of reclaiming a sense of dignity and and sovereignty and inner respect, a kind of reclaiming, which is so much a part of this practice, a reclaiming of our own heart and integrity and, and sense of completeness. And certainly this path and this teaching is not one that invites the surrender of discriminating wisdom. And part of what discriminating wisdom is really concerned with is understanding the difference between a bow and a scrape. Because a scrape is something that holds a self-abandonment and fear and anxiety. And a true bow, in my understanding, doesn't ask for any of that. But that a true bow can be an act a very radical act of love and freedom. Suzuki Roshi once said, when you bow, there is no Buddha and there is no you. 
One complete bow takes place. That is all. This is nirvana. Now my own long journey to a bow has been and is a contemplation of what in this teaching is called mana, the Pali word mana, which is translated as conceit or the conceit of self. Now it's very important to understand that mana, the use of the word conceit in this context, is probably a little bit different than how the associations we usually have with the word conceit. You know, when we think of conceit as being a kind of, you know, just a, a feeling of superiority or smugness or, you know, self-flattery. Um, it's used very differently than that, and I will explain. But I do feel we should never underestimate the power of the conceit of self and how ingeniously it can disguise itself. And it is the conceit of self that really does have the power to keep us locked in the dualities of self and other, has the power to separate and divide. And one is the conceit of self is one of the most powerful ways of perpetuating suffering. Suffering. In one of the maps of awakening, as the Buddha taught it, the conceit of self is the very last of all of the obstacles and obscurations to be let go of in the journey of full and complete liberation. That craving, aversion, fear, doubt, uh, agitation, ill will, that all of these are easier to let go of than the conceit of self. So I think, you know, we sort of get a sense of the size of the cloth, the cloth of mana, the cloth of conceit. So how does mana, or the conceit of self, manifest? It manifests in three different ways. Superiority conceit, inferiority conceit, and equality conceit. In one of the discourses of the Buddha, he says, one who has truly penetrated this threefold conceit is said to have put an end to suffering. That within this whole, this threefold conceit of being better than, worse than, or equal to, is held the whole world of self-view. That within the conceit of self is held the whole world of comparing, evaluating, judging, the measuring that goes on in our lives. That within the conceit of self, that it is the birthplace of striving and despair, of success and failure. And that within this threefold conceit, and the clinging to it are held all the ways that we position ourselves in this life, all the ways that we position others, I, you, self, other, and quite frankly, those, those dualities and those schisms are the, the intrinsic ground of all jealousy, envy, resentment, fear, 
and beliefs in unworthiness. So many of the afflictions that cause so much suffering and pain in our hearts. And in a real way, it is this conceit of self that really mars and mutes our capacity for empathy, loving kindness, compassion. Now, mana, or the conceit of self, is really describing the way that we contract around the sense of I, the sense of meanness, the sense of self. So I want to just look at the different ways that this mana can manifest. So the first one is a sense of self or conceit that expresses itself in superiority. The feeling better than, superior to, smarter than kind of conceit. Now that kind of superiority conceit can gather around a lot of different things. It can gather around our appearance, our bodies, you know, the, I'm more attractive, you know, I'm, I'm slimmer, I'm more beautiful than you. As you get older, it's I'm more toned, you know, than you are. <laughs> than you, of course, you know, because, I mean, it's always acknowledging that so many of our judgments and evaluations, and of course our comparison, for any comparison or judgment to be uh, valid, the I needs a you. Superiority conceit can gather around the mind and the intellect. You know, I'm really pretty smart, you know. Or, you know, we look at someone else and we say, I would never be that dumb. You know, <laughs> you know it, it, it can gather, and we might say, superiority conceit can gather around meditative attainments and achievements. You know, competitive meditation. You know that one? You're shuffling, I'm going to be still as a new eye, you know. <laughs> you know, the competitive meditation goes on all the time, you know. People talk about rehearsing for interview groups, you know. We look at somebody beside us shuffling or restless and we kind of comfort ourselves, you know, and congratulate ourselves that, you know, we really are just a much better yogi than them. <laughs> And then we find ourselves judging another's ignorance, being quite convinced that we would never act in the same way. You know, superiority conceit can be, you know, just that moment longer we stay after the bell is rung, you know, just hoping maybe somebody might notice. You know. <laughs> and quite frankly, some of the most enthusiastic bowers are filled with superiority conceit. It's easy to manifest. Of course, it's easy to spot where superiority conceit when it manifests in very gross ways, you know, like, like arrogance or bragging or, you know, the ways that we might find ourselves wanting to, you know, assert our importance or excellence on the world. But it can also be so subtle, superiority conceit. You know, I remember when, you know, my children were small, and I think they have in common with many small children, you know, that they, you know, one of their most common mantras was, look at me, look at me. You know, they would, they would do something. It was like it wasn't real unless somebody was looking at them. You know, look at me, look at me, when I do this, what I can do. But, you know, as we grow older, of course, we get much more subtle. But we can still be infatuated with our specialists, specialness. 
you know, sometimes superiority can, can, see, can even manifest as a kind of false modesty. You know, of course I'm wonderful, but just don't mention it. In, uh, it's a story of you know, it's a story of a rabbi who was on his deathbed, you know, and as he lay there dying with his wife beside him, you know, all these people came to to visit and to you know offer their appreciation, and he would stand around his bed, you know, extolling all his virtues, you know, rabbi, you know, no one has been so learned as you before, oh rabbi, no one has been so eloquent, oh rabbi, no one has been so so gracious and inspiring, and after all these kind of fans left. You know, his wife noticed the rabbi was pretty restless, and she says, you know, what is it, husband? You know, isn't it so lovely, so beautiful that people come to pay their respects? He says, yeah, but nobody mentioned my humility. <laughs> <laughs> One thing with all these manifestations of conceit is you see that um, they solidify the sense of I. That's the purpose of conceit, is to solidify the sense of self. And yet, of course, the sense of I, the sense of self, you may have noticed, is a tremendously fragile creature. And so often lurking behind superiority conceit is this sense of fear. You know, the fear of blame, the fear of disapproval. The fear of failure, the fear of not being good enough. And what it actually does, superiority conceit, is that it it mutes and subdues our capacity to learn. I mean, it can look like safe refuge, superiority conceit. You know, and many people in their whole life strive to find that safety believing they're going to find safety if they have this kind of view of a superior self. But, it lo- you know, when we look at, you know, people or look at our times in our own life when we've walked around with inferiority conceit, you know, superiority conceit does look kind of safer, but it, it also causes the same suffering as inferiority conceit. And certainly superiority conceit distorts compassion into its near enemy of pity. And it leaves a big footprint in the world. Locked into being better or worse, being preoccupied with praise, fearing blame, we actually fear others. If we fear blame, we fear others. And locked into superiority conceit, we are, of course, very far away from a bow. Now, the other side of mana is inferiority conceit. You know, perhaps for some, a more familiar territory. Feeling that we are somehow less than, worse than, inferior to, more unworthy, lower than, the chronic sense of unworthiness that can be such an epidemic in our culture. And in the torment of inferiority conceit, we can look with a certain envy 
at those people who who seem to be better or seem to have more superiority because they look invulnerable. And we imagine how much they must be so much happier than we are. And we see we almost see like the remedy for the torment of inferiority conceit is to somehow to get a little bit of the superiority conceit and to become like those who who seem to walk through the world with such assurance and confidence. And inferiority conceit, of course, engenders a lot of envy um, and at times a great deal of resentment. Sense of lack is what inferiority conceit is really all about. The sense of lack, of material lack, of emotional lack, a sense of deprivation. And this can be such a really deeply rooted belief system. And quite frankly, our whole culture thrives, our whole kind of economic culture thrives on it. You know, the selling of the empty promises of how how you really can improve yourself and how you really shouldn't settle for anything less than a perfect body and a perfect mind and a perfect life and a perfect relationship. You know, it earns a lot of money in our culture. But one thing that inferiority conceit also engenders is craving. Because you don't crave from a place of contentment and sufficiency. Craving and greed only arises in the ground of insufficiency, of not enough, a sense of lack. It can feel very opposite to the enlightened heart where you know, could truly ask the question what in this moment is lacking and feel there is nothing that is lacking. Inferi- inferiority conceit is also important to notice is the forerunner of scraping. You know, the tendency to create heroes and heroines that occupy this landscape that feels impossible for us. Um, and on a subtle, more, more subtle level perhaps, more unspoken level, is inferiority conceit in this practice, this teaching, actually leads us to see as liberation as being impossible for us. And inferiority conceit makes it very, very difficult to hold goals and aspirations skillfully. We might know very well how to bow to others, but find it very difficult to bow to ourselves. And for some people, learning to bow to themselves is the first step in realizing a bow is just a bow. Where all ideas of self and other, of worthy and unworthy, fall away. Now, I, I notice in teaching in the West that many Westerners have a kind of allergy to even the word goals in practice, even, even the word aspiration. Um, that it's hard to, to cultivate that sense of, of possibility 
And, you know, I mean, it's true for many people in their life, goals, the very fact of having goals, whether they're academic goals or professional goals or relationship goals, the goals is often, the whole thing of goals has often been surrounded by ambition and forcing and striving and tension. And many people come to feel that, oh, goals make me suffer. And, and come to meditate and say, you know, my practice about not having any goals. Well, you know, please don't read the discourses then, I would say. You know, because you read the sutta and his whole teaching and practice is saturated with goals. But what we might come to see in this practice is that it is not ever goals that made us suffer. That it's not the goals that made us suffer. That is the way that uh, the conceit of self has got tied in, woven in with goals. You know, that the, the, the skillful uh, sense of possibility and aspiration and goals in the practice got nothing to do with that world of success and failure. Success and failure has only to do with the conceit of self and not to do with wholesome aspiration. And so sometimes people come into practice, they're so afraid of that whole kind of duality and that whole painfulness of success and failure, of progress and lack and judgment and comparison, that, you know, they, they resist any sense of real aspiration in the teaching and the practice. But in truth, I think it's so important in this practice to learn to be really comfortable with and really at ease with the whole sense of goals and aspirations. You know, it is why we call it a path. It's because it's going somewhere. It does have an outcome. It does have a sense of direction. We are actually going somewhere. And I think first it's so important to see and, and to understand and to liberate ourselves from the conceit of self, from the inferiority and superiority conceit. It's actually one of the goals of this practice. But there's something about, I think, in this practice, and in our own path, our own journey, where we can come really with some sincerity just to be able to say to ourselves, you know, I do practice to be liberated. I practice because liberation seems impossible and I practice in order to reclaim that sense of possibility and to learn to bow to that sincerity, to learn to bow to that sense of aspiration. And in that moment of bowing, we're really bowing to, to that, that, that possibility of liberating the moment. And to letting go of inferiority conceit, which is really learning to lay down such a burden, a terrible burden, of self-judgment and blame and envy and, and resentment. You know, sometimes I, I work with people who are using various mindfulness-based applications in their life and in their work. And probably the thing that's said to me most by this group of people is that they don't feel good enough to do what they're doing. They don't feel good enough to do what they're doing. And I think, well, that's okay. You know, when we're totally enlightened, we'll be good enough to be doing what we're doing. Meanwhile, we're all on the journey. You know, we're all on a path. We're learning, actually. And it's not about feeling good enough. It's about acknowledging the sincerity and commitment 
of one's own motivation. In a way, that is really what brings dignity and authenticity to our practice. And it's being aware that laying down of inferiority and conceit doesn't leave a vacuum behind it, but it really releases our capacity for mudita, for appreciative joy, for a sense of of celebration and, and happiness in our practice. Practice is so much easier when there's no success and failure. It's, it's so much easier, isn't it? And you, you just show up all the time. You know, there isn't somewhere about success and failure, and yet that, that coexists with this paradigm that there is actually, or par- paradox, a seeming paradox, that there is a sense of direction. Now, when we see the suffering of superiority conceit and inferiority conceit, you know, we might think that equality conceit is is a middle path. (laughs) But it's not. You know, equality conceit is much more about the conceit of reductionism. You know, it's kind of that bit, it's a kind of more cynical, cynical attitude, I would say. You know, where we sort of look at ourselves and we look around us and we say, well... You know, we're all schmucks, we're all greedy, we're all deluded, we're all confused, you know, we're all the same, we're all just swimming in this cesspit of suffering, you know, and we can get a little bit reassured by that kind of cynicism, you know, or that kind of reductionism, because we keep seeing, you know, all we see, we look through those eyes, of equality, conceit. And actually what we keep seeing over and over again is like our own sense of delusion and confusion reflected everywhere. And when there is that kind of cynical attitude, that kind of equality, conceit, you know, we don't like anybody to actually look like they're doing better than we're doing. You know, and so we tend to find fault and imperfection in, in all our heroes and heroines, you know, because then we feel, well, I'm not so bad after all. But my sense that equality conceit is a kind of disillusionment with human possibility. That we look at those who appear kind of loftier or wiser than ourselves, and all we really want to see is their flaws. And I remember when, you know, Al Gore, you know, was given so much kind of acclaim for his documentary, um, you know, about global warming, you know, that, you know, immediately there were all these newspapers in America that published his electricity bills. And they were like enormous. But what they didn't mention, that of course he generated all his electricity from his own solar power and wind turbines, but there was that immediate need that, you know, he is not allowed to occupy this position of being having more integrity or something. You know, equality conceit can be quite comforting because we, also we look at those who seem kind of worse off than we are, more confused even, and more deluded. And we know we've been there and we're glad, you know, and it sort of relieves us from bowing at all, actually. But through it, there's a kind of cynicism, even a bitterness, sometimes a sense of hopelessness. Now, I want to kind of give you a couple of examples here to, to look at the way that some of this conceit might play out. Now, you know, suppose we're in the hall, you know, Rob and Catherine and I, and, and you know, suppose we're, you know, leading a sitting and we kind of just fell asleep. 
snored even. <laughs> Fell off our cushion. Now, if we, or if I, was locked in superiority conceit and that happened, I would feel mortified. It would be such a dent in my self-image. You know, if I was locked in inferiority conceit, I probably wouldn't be here. Or if that I was still here, I would disguise it well and I would tell you it was a teaching. <laughs> but I would still be devastated. Um, if I was locked in equality conceit, I'd say, no, I don't expect anything else, you know. We're all dull, you know. How's it all going to be, you know. Now, what would happen if you were locked in one of these threefold conceits and one of us fell off our cushion? You know, if you were locked in, in inferiority conceit, you'd feel so disappointed in us. You know, oh, we were supposed to be better than that, you know. <laughs> supposed to be beyond that, you know, now there's no hope at all, you know. <laughs> if you were locked in superiority conceit, you'd probably feel a little smug. <laughs> Look at them nodding off, you know, and I'm so upright, you know, <clears throat> you know. And if you were locked in equality conceit, you'd feel quite consoled, you know, that, oh, now I can sleep happily, they're doing what I can do, you know. <laughs> But what you notice in these positions of this conceit, these different conceit positions, is they produce a lot of storytelling. They produce a real lot of storytelling. You know, we've always got our eye on our own elevation or deflation. You know, we've always got our eye on everybody else. There's always that sense of, of judging, positioning, locating, placing, better, worse, same as, which means a lot of storytelling. Now turn the same scenario around and you fall off your cushion, which some of you have done. And how would these three four conceits play out? You know, if you were locked in inferiority conceit and you fell off your cushion, you might suffer for hours. You know, replaying it. What does everybody think about me? You know, now they all know. <laughs> Oh no, what a crap meditator I am, you know. And you might bring in years of history, you know, every single instance of failure, your entire life from the time you were one year old. You know, if you were locked in superiority conceit, you would feel very, very exposed. If you're locked in equality conceit, you'd be sort of hoping for the next person to do the same thing. Now, what we do see in these, these kind of threefold conceits is really the process of selfing. The process of selfing. The process of fixing and solidifying our views of self and our views of other. And actually, this is what the practice is really dedicated to liberating. But first, we really need to sensitize ourselves in a way to this process of selfing. Don't think of I as a noun, please. Think of selfing as a verb. Think of selfing as a verb. An event, a process that happens, that changes shape, changes form moment to moment. To sensitize ourselves to that. Now, first we might just sense ourselves to the very obvious manifestation, manifestations of mana. 
you know, the forms of judgment and comparison, of striving, despair, but also the kind of multiple self-views that have been constructed in a single day. I mean, really, truly, how many self-views have you held today? You know, since you woke up this morning, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm depressed, I'm getting somewhere, I'm not getting somewhere. You know, I'm excited, I'm, I'm fearful, I'm anxious, I'm doing pretty well, I'm not doing so well. You know, how many? Notice the selfing view, the formation of views through grasping hold of anything at all. I am, you are. And it's really important not to get agitated around this process of selfing, but to learn to bow to those moments. Because to really see that, you know, in that process of selfing, there can be this solidification into view that says, I am. Then there's suffering. There's immediately suffering. And really notice that. That every time there's a kind of a solidification into I am, you immediately suffer. Every time there's a kind of releasing of that, you're much happier. More immediately, much more spacious. Now, life, I think, you know, we don't actually really have to make this very complicated because I think life, seen wisely, is a tremendous ally in offering us the opportunity to let go of the conceit of self. Now, for all of us, there are times when our worlds fall apart, when we meet the unpredictable, when we meet illness, loss, hardship. And you know what? We can't always fix it. We can't always control it. And we can't always make it go away. And in so many ways, the conceit of self is eroded and brought into the light of questioning simply by the circumstances of our lives, the events of our bodies and our minds that we cannot control. Have you ever come to that place in your life, faced with something that is changing in ways that you can't control, and you know there is no more that you can do? There's no more that you can do. Now, in that moment, there's a possibility of sinking into despair and fear, but those moments can also be profoundly liberating. Teacher was once asked, what is the secret of your happiness? And they answered, it is a wholehearted, unrestricted cooperation with the unavoidable. Basically, life. Suzuki Roshi speaks of bowing as a way of challenging mana, of challenging the conceit of I, of challenging all the ways that we hold ourselves apart and contracted, all the ways that we find ourselves in these ideas of better, worse, the same of. The bowing is a way of bringing an end to suffering. Suzuki Roshi, he said, When everything exists within your, own, within your big mind, all dualistic relationships drop away. There is no distinction between heaven and earth, teacher and disciple. 
Sometimes a man bows to a woman, sometimes a woman bows to a man, sometimes a disciple bows to the master, sometimes the master bows to the disciple, sometimes the master and disciple bow together to the Buddha. Sometimes we may bow to cats and dogs. In your practice, you should accept everything as it is, giving to each thing the same respect given to a Buddha. Here there is Buddhahood. The Buddha bows to the Buddha, and you bow to yourself. This is the true bow. Now, clearly, what Suzuki Roshi is speaking about here is not just a physical gesture, but about an attitude of heart. An attitude of welcoming, responding, unconditionally being willing to meet life, whether lovely or difficult, in times of ease and hardship. As Nagarjuna did say, you know, what do you do with a life that doesn't go away? And the bow is really ceasing of wanting anything to go away. And this is a liberation that we really do liberate ourselves moment by moment and bow by bow and bow by bow from all the, the torments of resistance and aversion and judgment and the exaggerated responsibility that is born of attaching ourselves to our preferences. Then we learn to bow to what is. We bow to what is. You know, a few years ago, I was, I was teaching in Cuba, and teaching in Cuba was a bit of a trip, for sure. But one thing we learned was things never worked. It, nothing ever worked the way it was kind of meant to work. Well, nothing worked, basically. Bathrooms didn't work, lunch didn't arrive. You know, no, nothing worked, nothing worked at all. In fact, every day was kind of like this constant sort of, you know, attending to the details of just, you know, just trying to get this retreat kind of moving along moment to moment. And, you know, we would get called into immigration, you know, and the dogs would wander through the meditation hall, and the ants would jump on our faces, you know, and then the, there was no water in the bathrooms. and You know, it was a whole trip. You know, it was a trip. And, and one day I looked over at this student of mine who had gone with me. He was translating... And I noticed he had this huge smile on his face. And this was had been a really bad day from the time we started in the morning. <coughs> a really difficult day. And he had this big smile on his face. I said, Eduardo, I said, why are you smiling? And he said, he says, I just finally got it. He said, he says, I've been listening to you and others all these years saying that you cannot grasp hold of anything, you cannot control anything. He says, I finally got it. He says, I think this is what it feels like to be enlightened. <laughs> you know? And the whole rest of the trip, he never lost that smile. He never lost that smile. He just finally, it just really clicked for him. To be with what is the way it is without aversion or craving is a tremendous liberation of the heart. Suzuki Roshi said that we practice bowing as long as our life is. That to bow is to open our heart to this moment, to respect to care that bowing is learning to let go of the conceit of I, even if it is simply that inner bow. 
It's letting go of that conceit of I that keeps us locked in this very small world of competitiveness and striving and despair. And we begin to hold that world a little bit more lightly. A little bit more lightly. Just as we can hold the vast amount of suffering in this world with a little bit more compassion. A compassion that is made so much simpler by the release of all the notions, all the views of self and other that are only ever solidified by the conceit of self. So we learn to soften. We learn to soften. We learn to examine, to be mindful of this conceit of I. We learn not to be so fooled by it, not to be so deceived by it in a way to bring a kind of creative disbelief And then that is, in a way, the bow. If we take just a couple of moments quietly together.